Welcome to another edition of the Haber Show podcast. I'm excited about this week's special guest. His name is Stan Van Gundy, who has won over 500 games in the NBA as a head coach, and he now works at ESPN. You can catch him on NBA Countdown, as well as appearing on the Dan Lebitard Show. Stan is witty, he's thoughtful, he's hardworking. He's also teaching a class at Stetson University there in Florida. We'll talk about the James Harden effect and the three-point shot. We'll talk about his friend, Tom Thibodeau, who was fired recently by the Minnesota Timberwolves. We'll also talk about Fred Hoiberg, who was let go by Chicago. We'll talk about the stresses of the coaching profession, what it's like to be an NBA head coach, and whether he wants to do that again. Go through that whole process of sleeplessness and stress and being miserable and why he would ever want to do that again. So we'll get into all that. I'm really excited about this. I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, Stan Van Gundy. I hear a rumor that you're teaching a class at Stetson. Is that true? Yeah, I just started Monday night. So I've, I've, I've had one class and uh, I don't know how I did, but we made it through. Yeah, it's sports business class. So um, it's a little out of my league uh, in some <laughs> ways, but it's issues I'm interested in. And it's a small class, 14 students. You know, it's a seminar class. So it's good. And I've got I could tell from the first class, I've got kids who are interested and will bring a lot to the class. So that'll be good. So did you do like a syllabus? Did you have to do all those things? Like what professors Yeah, I do? had to, I created the syllabus and the, and the whole thing, a, a lot more work than I had even expected. And <laughs> I'm not sure I would have done it if I would have known how much work it is, but it's an interesting challenge. I think anytime, you know, that you get a chance to try something new, at the very least, you'll learn something. So it's going to be fun, I think. Okay, so last week when we had J.J. Redick, I warmed him up. I did a little layup line for the podcast, a little pop quiz, just grilling him on who assisted him the most in his career, and he named him right off the bat. He could name, like, the top five. So I thought we would do something similar here with you, Stan. It's not going to be too hard, but with all the three-point records being broken left and right, I wanted to look up who is the all-time leader in three-pointers made under Stan Van Gundy as head coach. And J.J. Redick is fifth with 394. Can you name the four above him? Again, my God, a player under you as a head coach. Boy, oh boy. No, I, I probably cannot. I, I'm going to say uh, Richard Lewis is somewhere on that list. He is number one um, by far, 658. Yeah, I, okay. Boy, Turkaloo is probably on that list. Number two, 477. Yeah, He's on fire, oh, folks. Yeah. Um. Wow. Uh, Reggie Jackson? Ah, uh, he's uh he's eighth on the list with 264. Eighth number three is an Orlando guy, and number uh, four Jameer would be the other Orlando guy. That is the other Orlando guy. Shot 39.8 percent from deep under you, and then the fourth on the list. Boy, oh boy, um, man, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't in Miami long enough. Um. He made more than J.J. Redick, but did not shoot as well as J.J. Redick, which not many people have. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I don't know who four would be. All right, he has a very long name, very long, hyphenated last name, Contavious Caldwell Pope. Oh, you know what? That come on, Stan. That wasn't good. That was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had him long enough in Detroit. I had him three years. Yeah, absolutely. 
So Ryan Anderson is number six. Anthony Tolliver, number seven. Eddie Jones, there's your Miami guy. Um, yeah, those guys, we get to Tolliver and Eddie Jones. I only had them a couple of years each, so two years each. So it's uh, not a lot of time. People think that you are a curmudgeon, an old school guy who doesn't like the three-pointer, but you were a pioneer. I know you're not going to say that because you got Richard Lewis that summer, but when you took over the Miami Heat, you also ramped up the three-point shooting. When you took over the Orlando Magic, you got Richard Lewis, but you also had Turkaloo shoot more. You had Keith Bogans in the four-out system yep. there. He averaged five three-pointers a game, and no one really thought that he could do that. And then in, in Detroit, you also ramped up. The Pistons ranked 25th in three-pointers, and then you took over. They ranked, You guys ranked just about 10th in the league in threes. So what's your uh, thinking behind that, and like, where do you think this league is going with the three-point shot? Are you behind it, or are you like, this is, this is getting out of control here? Well, look, I think it's an important part of the game, and for me, it was more about Spacing, creating spacing to allow guys like Dwayne Wade, Shaquille O'Neal, Dwight Howard, you know, Andre Drummond, Reggie Jackson, Jameer Nelson, guys to allow them space on the floor to be able to, you know, either work in the paint as a big guy or penetrate the ball into the paint as a perimeter guy. And, and so that's the way I looked at it. I, I'm a big believer in it. But in terms of sitting down and watching a game, I just think, Tom, it's gotten crazy. When you look at, you know, now Houston for two years in a row here is going to shoot more threes than twos. They shoot 70 last night in a game. In the first half, they shot 35 threes and 14 twos. I think what we're, we're starting to miss is the excitement of plays at the rim. You know, when I first came in the league as an assistant in the mid-90s, you know, there were a a lot of play. I mean, the defensive rules were different. um, There were a lot of plays at the rim with these great athletes challenging these great shot blockers. and, And now sometimes I'm looking out there and I feel like I'm watching a suburban high school game just played at a, you know, uh, an ultra high level. But it's just guys standing around shooting. And I think, right, a a lot of people, maybe in the NBA office and some of the media just equate scoring with excitement. And I'm not there as somebody watching the game. I, I think there's a lot of exciting plays that are possible that we're not getting as much of. And then I also think what's happened is because guys can go on these incredible tears, we're getting a lot of blowouts. I think we've already had 34 games decided by 30 or more this year, only 40 all of last year and right around the same number five years ago. Close competitive games, regardless of the style of play, are always exciting. I I think we're headed in the wrong direction. We're okay right now. Where are we going to be in five years? Is everybody going to shoot 50 or 60 threes a game? Because we've got players who are capable of doing it. You know, I'm not sure it's the the best for exciting basketball. Yeah, and the scary thing is that, uh, you know, you brought it up, Stan. Great point is that you kind of used three-pointers as a means to an end. 
you know, you use three pointers to space the floor so you can get high efficiency shots for your big men or your point guard to get into the lane. But now I feel like with Steph Curry shooting right now, he's averaging like 15 three point shots in his last six or seven games. And from the math, it's like, yeah, if you have a guy who's shooting 45% from three with the added value of the three point shot, it's like a 65, 70% shot from two. You want that guy to take a lot of those shots. But it also, from a fan's perspective, it's exciting when Steph Curry shoots it. It's exciting when James Harden does it with the step back. It's like a Jordan fadeaway from 15 feet. It's an amazing shot, but I wonder what it does to just the rest of the game. There's no movement. Austin Rivers is just parked in the corner. P.J. Tucker is parked in the corner. And J.J. Redick talked about it uh, yesterday. He said, like, I need to move to get open. I can't just stand around and watch the ball. I need to move around. And I think that's kind of one of the things in today's game that might be lost is just off-ball move and running sets it seems like it's just high pick and roll or iso to try to get a three-pointer there's no question and and jj used to talk about that all the time when he played for me and and at times you know saying to me i need more movement you know to feel in the flow of the game and i think obviously he and Embiid have really uh formed a good combination there in Philadelphia. I think they're fun to watch. I think San Antonio's fun to watch. I think there are some teams still who move the ball and and play some inside out. I actually thought the uh, Celtic-Toronto game was really good last night. You know, there were three shots, but there were a lot of plays at the rim and tough finishes. Kyrie, Kawhi, even Jason Tatum. To me, that's much better basketball when there's some kind of balance. Look, as amazed as I am by what James Harden is doing, and it's incredible, and I appreciate the talent and the productivity, they're hard to watch. I struggle to watch them. I mean, you just watch everybody stand around, and you're basically, if you want to watch a half-court one-on-one game played at a high level, then turn on the Houston Rockets. But they're going to play really slow. They're going to be about as stagnant as anybody in the league. I think people just watch them to see how many can James get tonight. I mean, because you are watching a phenomenal player. I was even saying to somebody last week, I admire Mike D'Antoni because he's a great, great coach, and he's doing what's best for his team to win, which is his job. And I really admire him because I know damn well that that's not the way he wants to see the game play. I mean, Mike likes to play fast. He likes movement. He likes the ball movement. And they don't do any of that. But that's not what's best for their team. Bottom three in pace. And I think also there's this kind of other layer to this, Stan, that someone brought up to me recently. So I'm not going to take credit for it. When Harding gets to the free throw line, that helps the defense. That helps the Houston defense because they can just go back and get set. Yeah, no question. I remember Brendan Malone telling me when he was in Detroit working for Chuck Daly and they traded for Adrian Dantley, Chuck Daly said to uh, Brendan, boy, that's really going to help our defense. And at the time, Brendan didn't really understand. He's like, you know, not like Adrian Dantley was known as a great defender. And Chuck Daly said, He's going to be on the free throw line, and we're going to be able to set our defense. It's really going to help us. He's absolutely right. And and look, I think it's one of the questions that's coming up around James Harden right now is, you know, his high usage rate, are they going to wear him out going into the playoffs? And I think that one of the things that's going to, well, a couple of things that are going to help him not wear down 
They play at a very slow pace. Mm-hmm. On the free throw line a lot, which gives him a break, but he's not taking like a lot of hard hits. Like I had Dwayne Wade early in his career. When he goes to the basket, I mean, he'd get knocked down and take hard falls. Derrick Rose obviously went through that. That's not what James Harden does. He's drawing fouls, going up through guys' arms. He's not taking hits. Yep. So the trips to the free throw line help him. And then to be generous, he picks his spots defensively. Let's just put it as nicely as we can. So I don't think he's going to wear down. Yeah, and I and I wonder. There's a like a little bit of a chess match here as a coach. How would you guard James Harden because he's so difficult when you reach or contest hard? He's going to figure out a way to get to the free throw line and the three shot foul. I liken it to a home run hitter in baseball who's figured out a way to load the bases. So when he hits a home run, he's going to get four runs instead of one. So when James Harden is taking a three-pointer, he's figured out how to draw a foul on that, which is a superpower. Because when you go to the free throw line, you get three points automatically. When you're as good a free throw shooter, it's three points. He's figured out this gimmick, this loophole, and it's just taken his skill of shooting step backs and drawing fouls and multiplied it. But how would you guard James Harden if you had to go in a playoff series against that guy? What would you do? Would you sit on his left side, his right side? Would you even like the Warriors hold their hands behind their back, just short of put their hands in their pants so that they don't foul them. Like, what do you do? Well, I think anytime you're guarding, you know, just generically the star players is, is I think that first of all, you've got to try to take away the easy baskets that they get. So hard. You don't have to worry as much about with that, but with a lot of these guys, people try to make it so hard on them to get the ball that they end up, you know, in denial and giving up back cuts and things like that. I've never believed that you want to give them easy baskets. You don't give them anything in transition. You keep them off the offensive glass. And then I think from there, you've got to look at a guy's skill set and you got to try to take something away. So you're not going to stop the Kevin Durant, James Harden, Steph Curry, I mean, Kawhi Leonard. Those are the four top scorers in the league right now. You're not going to stop those guys. And you can't take everything away. So what are you going to do? I like the way San Antonio plays James Harden. Yep. Uh, they don't put their hands behind their back, but their hands are up. They're not going to foul. The thing they're going to try to take away is the free throws. It requires great, great discipline. Mm -hmm. We weren't as extreme in trying to get him to his right hand. We wanted him to go right, but we didn't open up our stance, you know, say like some of the teams do where they're just really giving him that right hand. We would try to stay in front of him. We would get our big up if it was a pick and roll. And, And on a lot of the pick and rolls, we trapped and blitzed him. And then I like what Brooklyn did late in the game last yep. night. They doubled. Every, as soon as he crossed half court, they just doubled him and tried to get the ball out of his hands. Yeah, That was a scheme or a strategy that people used to use pretty frequently. You know, they would use it against Utah with Stockton and Malone when they'd come down the stretch in games and they'd run all that stuff on the left side of the floor. They'd just come at Stockton early. You used to see it a lot and you don't see it much anymore I think it's a because there's so many skilled players on the floor but I don't care right now with Houston like he's proving that he can beat you on his own I think I'd go in and take my chances playing four on three against those other guys um, and trying to rotate quickly than just standing there letting him 
uh, go to work on you, um, get the ball out of his hands, maybe frustrate him a little yep. bit. So to me, I do like San Antonio. You got to take the free throws away from him. Too big a weapon. It gives him rest at the free throw line. It gets him into a rhythm on the nights. He's not shooting the ball well. Um, it requires great discipline on the part of your players, but we're just not going to foul this guy. He's going to have to make a ton of shots on his own. So just to switch gears here, I looked this up today, Stan. I'm a numbers guy. You do the stat of the day, by the way, on Lebertard's show, and you need to step off my turf here. <laughs> like, come on. I'm not going on the NBA coaching prowl and trying to do the sideline work. I'm not doing that. So can you respect my turf here and get off the whole stat thing? Because this is my territory. But uh, well, it's a- <laughs> Lebertard makes me do three things, three nuggets every time I'm on, and, and it gets hard. So I steal a lot from, you know, you and other guys that I read stuff. Um, last night it came from, you know, the ones I used today came from the guy last night. Jose that does the research on the uh, yes on the uh, NBA countdown. So that used to be me, NBA by the NBA way. That used to that was my first job at ESPN was being that guy. There you go. So this is the first time since 1995 that you, your brother Jeff, or Tom Thibodeau have not been a head coach in the NBA. You guys are the. I mean, the Van Gundy tree has got to be one of the the top coaching patriarchs of the league. And I guess I, I'm going to consider Steve Clifford in there too. Uh, But when he was hired in Orlando, the GM, Ron Weltman, said, you have to kind of bear in mind that Steve comes from that Van Gundy tree, and those guys are famous for landing at 3 o'clock from a road trip and being in the office at 5. And another coach in a David Aldridge story at NBA.com said, I don't think people have any idea how stressful these jobs are. You are judged daily. And then I read a story from the Detroit Free Press, a feature written about you and, you know, your future and what you want to do and what life is like after the Pistons. And your wife was talking about how you're always miserable when you're coaching. I'm like, why do you want to do this, Stan? Why? Like, why do you want to be a coach when everyone seems to say you're miserable? You're, Stan, you've won 60% of your college games. You've won 60% of your NBA games. And it just seems like a miserable lifestyle. Like, do you still feel the pull, the tug, as you call it, to coach? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> you know what? There's, here's the thing. During this season, it is, at least for me, um, and it certainly was for my brother, there's a lot of misery to it because, you, you know, you get so locked into the, to the results. And even if you're doing well, like I had really good teams, in Orlando and stuff. And even when you're doing well, you're actually trying to avoid impending doom. Like you see a five game losing streak around every corner. And so you're working and trying to get better and all of that. But there's a lot of positives to it. What is the drug? What When you think about the itch or the drug that you need when you're not in coaching, what is the moment or what is the scene of what you're like dreaming of the most is like, I just want that feeling again. Well, what it is to me is the camaraderie of working together with a group of people to try to get a result and the ups and downs of all of that. I mean, other than my family, all of my closer relationships are people I've worked with or coached or because I think you get to know people on a different level when you're going through those things and trying to win, it's beyond friendship. And so 
you know, I, I develop an intense loyalty toward those people. And I miss that. I do miss the process. I do wish I enjoyed it more while I, while I was in it, but I miss the process of trying to work with a group of people to make things better. There's like a deep meaning behind working. It's not just the wins. Cause I, I think you've, you've said it, your brother has said it, Pat Riley, they've all said it is, you know, there's, there's, what is it? What's the line? The, there's misery. And then there's, I, don't, I even forget what is it. There's something about winning and losing and there's, there's no, yeah, there's winning. And the line is in the NBA, there's winning and there's misery. Winning is miserable. It sounds like, cause you just feel like hey, the other shoe's going to drop. Yeah. The, the, that's the part that I never really did a good job with was enjoying the winning. Like you, you work hard, your team works hard. I really wish that I would at least, even if I'm going to be miserable the rest of the time, to really enjoy the winning. And, and, you know, too many times, well, consistently coming in on off of wins and obsessing over what we didn't do well in that game. And at least if I could have saved that till the next day. And, and I had assistant coaches through the years try to make sure that I understood that and, and sort of changed that approach. And I think I did change it with my players. But, you know, personally, I, I just was always obsessed with what we needed to improve on. And maybe that's good for for the team in the long run, team success, but it's certainly not good for a coach's happiness. Yeah, because uh, last year, Ty Lu, who you've worked closely with in the past, and Steve Clifford took leaves of absences to deal with, you know, sleep deprivation and the health effects, you know, associated with that. Take me behind the curtain. What is an NBA coach at night? What is the lifestyle like? And are you different from Tibbs? Are you different from Cliff um, in your sleep habits or your your coaching habits and when you like to, you know, really get into the office? Well, the, the one thing that gave me a difference with Steve and Tom is family, you know, so, uh, you know, I got a wife and four kids. And so, you know, I, I get a break from it. Um, I get great happiness out of my family. I, so I get that release from it. I, I think mm. it's one of the things I've always wondered, you know, with those guys and with Eric Spolster until he got married, man, if I didn't, I've said it to my wife a lot. If I didn't have family and I was coming home on my own every night. I mean, then you're really obsessing about it and, and there's no break for it for all. So for me, I didn't do the film until the next morning. Mm. So I would get up early, but at least that night, but sometimes I would, you know, playoff situations, things like that, back to backs, obviously you have to, but other than that, you know, I would really, I don't know about relax. Like I never <laughs> went out like my, you know, I never went out. Like we didn't say, Oh, great win. Let's go out, get something to eat. But I'd at least just go home and talk to my family a little bit and try to get a little bit of rest and get up the next morning and go at it. But it, it is all consuming. At least it was for me. Yeah. And I think it is with most guys, but I'm not sure it necessarily has to be that way. You said to Rex on his podcast, Real Talk Basketball, you said that you felt kind of lost at the time, and then you had to walk that back. And I'm wondering why you felt like you had to walk that back. Well, because I had a, I had a lot of people like who I think took it the wrong way. And I mean, I actually had a lot of people getting in touch with me like 
feel almost feeling sorry for me. <laughs> and that's not the way that's not the way I meant it at all. I didn't say it that I was unhappy. I really sort of and there still now. I am a little bit lost in terms of you know, what do I want to do going forward? You know, and I've never had that feeling before. When I got fired in Orlando, I knew at least what I wanted to do. Now, I didn't know if I could get another job, but I knew I wanted to get another job yeah. and wanted to coach again. So even though I did some things in the in the two years off and, and got to spend a ton of time with my family, I didn't have any feeling of being lost. I, I knew that I would be back at it right now. I don't know, you know, it would have to be a really good situation. Plus quite honestly, I don't know that I can get back. I mean, it, it gets tougher as you get older. And so what else do I want to do with my life? So I'm doing some different things. Like you mentioned, I'm teaching a class. I'm, I'm doing some of the stuff for ESPN. I'm going on Levitard show. I'm doing some speaking things, you know, so I'm doing some things trying to determine what do I want to do here? And, and I'm not really that close to an answer. Do you have a hobby? Like, do you like fishing or playing chess or like reading books? No, I'm not <laughs> smart enough to play chess. I read a lot. I do read a lot. And I, I guess my, my hobby is politics and social justice. Yep education, things like that. I, I try to get involved in, in issues. I've written some op-eds. I've put my, you know, I've gone in with some other people in the sports world to write some op-eds. I try to speak my mind on issues like that. I try to stay as informed as I can on what's going on. So it's not what you would normally think of as a hobby, but I spend a lot of time reading and, and trying to keep myself up to date on what's happening in the world and, and things like that. I guess that's my hobby. So uh, you really do care about justice. You do care about the people in this country, around the world, and you really do connect with people. I actually, I heard a story that you once wrote a letter to a 34-year-old Eric Spolstra saying, you're going to be a head coach one day. And until that moment when he got that letter from you, he didn't think he could do it. He never saw that as a future for himself. And that empowered him and your belief in him flipped the switch for him and made him believe that he could one day be a head coach. Now he's won two championships and is one of the most highly regarded coaches in the league. And to this day, he keeps that letter that you wrote to him back, you know, 2004 when you were a head coach with the Heat. Is that the type of stuff that you truly at the end of the day care about and why it's so hard to be on the outside because you want to have that impact in people's lives? Well, that actually makes me sound like a lot better person than I am. Um, <laughs> but I just look, I, I grew up with a father who coached for over 40 years. I grew up around coaches. I have great respect for coaches in general. I've had a lot of coaches through the years who have helped me both in learning the game and, and given me encouragement and those types of things. And I've tried when I've had the opportunity to give back to people in the profession, mainly in, in terms of encouragement and things like that. And I've tried to be an ally for coaches for a couple of reasons. Number one, because you know, I want to help them. And number two, I, I think that coaches are the only ones who really understand what other coaches are going through and coaches need allies. And 
I'll try to be that when I have the opportunity. Yeah, like Rex said that when he lost his job, Rex Walters, uh, when he lost his job, you were one of the first people to reach out. Ty Lu said when he was dealing with his stuff last year, you reached out to him and Steve Clifford, obviously, you reached out to him during his downtimes. I mean, it just seems like um, people don't get to see that side of you. They just hear you screaming on the sidelines and yelling and they don't see this compassionate side of like trying to and better people's lives. And I think it's hard. You mentioned how being married and having a family is actually helpful to you at your workplace because it separates the reality and the, and the insanity of being an NBA coach. And I'm wondering like for a lot of guys in my profession, they feel like they got to keep putting out more. They have to be on social media more. They got to tweet more. They got to post on Instagram more, 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 more. And I'm wondering if we've reached kind of this like tipping point where no, less is more. Like, it's not healthy to be up all night working. It's not healthy to be posting everything that is going on in your life in the interest of social media or transparency. Do you feel like we're learning to pull back a little bit and understand that there is a healthy medium between being a workaholic, burning on both ends, to being a, and you don't want to be lazy, but there has to be a happy medium there, right? And coaching too. Yeah, well, there should be. I don't know very many coaches who have found that happy medium, but I do know a lot of coaches. <laughs> who are, in fact, the vast, vast majority of the ones I know care a lot about people. And one of the things that my wife says to me all the time, and especially when I'm coaching, she's always reminding me, you know, it's about the people. It's about the people. And so I may not have had great balance in my life, but, but I do think with her help, you know, I was able to understand that it is about the people and that the people are more important than anything else. And I think one of the things that people didn't always understand is, yeah, I tended to be fairly hard on players. I tried to get better with that over the years, and I think I did. But I think one of the reasons that I was able to do that and is that I think players knew that I cared about them individually and away from basketball and I think they did get to know me on a little bit of a different level. I wasn't just the guy screaming at him or, yep. or something like that. And I've been, you know, one of the most gratifying things for me is to go through this profession and back to college days, but even with NBA guys to have maintained so many relationships with players and have good feelings to those people going forward. And, and I, I've been very happy about that. When I was looking at your career, just kind of, preparing for this this interview here it reminded me one thing reminded me of my own life this idea of you know you didn't want it to end that way in Detroit you didn't want it to wrap up that way you wanted to kind of control it or have a different ending to that story and I remembered in high school in my playing days were over in high school I was not going to play college basketball but my team at Staples in Connecticut, we were the best team in our high school for 20 years. And the, my four other starters were all seniors with me my senior year. We played basketball together since we were in third grade. We were the stars of the team since third grade. There were articles all over Connecticut, and that's not a large ma- – I'm acting like Connecticut's a huge place. It's like the smallest state in the nation. Anyway – There was this thing in my head when I was in high school that it was going to have this storybook ending of like we were going to go and in our last game, we're all going to it's going to be down to the last second. We're going to miss a heartbreaking shot. But we knew at center court we were going to hug together and it was going to be a fairy tale. But what really happened, Stan, is that we won our first game in the state playoffs. 
We played New Britain High School. And New Britain, by the way, that's hard-hitting New Britain, Tom Thibodeau's high school, right? We played New Britain High School and we got our asses handed to us. We got killed. And in the last like few minutes of my high school career, I'm playing with my four other friends, best friends, and we were down like by 10, 15 points. And my coach subbed me out for a three-point shooter, a freshman, to try to rally back. And that's not how I imagined it ending. And I sat on the bench and cried. I cried. I was a senior in high school. And I just, I think when I look back on it, I think what really tore me apart about that moment was just realizing that this is how it's going to end. Like that is not yeah. how I dreamed it. And I, I'm wondering, Stan, like when you think about the, the pull, the tug of coming back into coaching, how much of it is that? Is that you just, it's a bad taste in your mouth, how things ended and, and realizing like, man, I wish I just had that last year I wish things could end differently. And then do you take a step back and say, can I control my destiny as a coach? Like, is it possible that I, I, I won't have that super perfect ending that I've always dreamed? How much of it is that, that feeling of, man, that is not the way that I dreamed as an NBA coach, how it would all end? Yeah, you know, there, there is, the, it never goes the way you want at the end. And it is sort of crazy because, how many guys end with any kind of storybook finish? Because if you win a championship, even, well, you're going to come back the next year. <laughs> right, right. You know, you, you are. I mean, I, I read a thing today that, you know, Pop's not sure what his future is. He's had this great career. He's having a great season right now. But they're probably not going to win a championship. You know, so he's not going to go out like that. Like, very few people go out at the top. Some like, do, no, one, no one pulls a Barry Sanders, right? Very rarely do they yeah, pull a Barry there's Sanders. there's not many. There's not many. You know, I mean, Phil Jackson, pretty damn close. But then he went and took the Knicks job and sort of ruined that. You know, but his coaching ended pretty good. But not not a lot of them. But for me, it's, yeah, it, it's those relationships. And I don't know. There's just a bond beyond friendship when you work with people like that as long and hard as you work and, and you just even if you don't see them very often even the guys you don't talk to a lot there's always a bond like a year ago a year and a half ago I was back at Castleton State College in Vermont for alumni weekend and my wife and I hadn't been back in a long time and all the two guys who I had coached in the time there came back and I'm looking at these guys and it's 35 years later and they don't all see each other very often. It was like immediate. They see each other and it was like they had seen each other every day for those 35 years. And those things don't go away. And, and those are the things that's the drug. That's what, at least for me, that's what you get addicted to in coaching and in, you know, in athletics in general. And it's a tough thing to, to give up. Can you and Tibbs and your brother get a podcast already? Just you sitting around watching or, or talking about the NBA and basketball? Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting thing. I, I mean, there's two things like with Tom's situation when you bring up his name is, and it goes back to supporting coaches, but, but so many people are really cavalier about coaches on the hot seat and fire this guy. I don't care what the sport is and everything else. And you know, I get that. And, and, you know, people will say, you know, those guys make a lot of money. You don't feel sorry. You don't have to feel sorry for them and the whole thing. I don't really ever feel sorry for guys, but, but there's two things in those situations. And, and the first is 
the people they forget about there is like when I lose my job in Detroit, a lot of other people lose their jobs and they're not making the money I'm making. They're making very, very normal salaries and they're out of work because I didn't win enough games. And so people don't, I think, understand that. But the second thing that I identify with, with a guy like Tom, Tom went to Minnesota. He had a vision. He had a plan. He worked his butt off every single day. He made that thing better. And then, boom, it all comes crashing down, and you're out the door. I mean, that that feeling of loss is, is real. And I don't care. At that point, it doesn't come down how much money you're making. Sure, Tom's going to be fine financially, and I get that, but it doesn't mean that a dream didn't die. And, you know, I I feel for guys because that's in every situation, high school, college, it doesn't matter. People go in with this idea of what they want to do and they pour everything into it. And then when it comes down to the end and somebody fires you, man, that's a Difficult situation. I've well, been through it three times. I mean, I also feel like there is a, a, I don't know, the authenticity there uh, or a lack of their, their transparency. I don't know what he knew or if he knew that he was a dead man walking there in Minnesota. But the fact that they had turned their season around, I'm not saying that they were the uh, the 27 Yankees or anything like that, but they were one of the top 10 defensive teams. Once Jimmy Butler was traded, they were one of the be- better defensive teams in the league. Before he got that job, and for the first couple years when he had that job with Minnesota, they were bottom five defensively, and it was very hard to produce a Carl Anthony Towns, you know, having him grow up as a defender and be a really good defensive unit, and they were, and no one really gave them a chance after trading Jimmy Butler. They, I, I probably thought that they would be one of the worst defensive teams, but they did do well. And then to fire him in game 40 after beating the Lakers by 22 points, it just seemed like, man, was he just a dead man walking for 20 games? Why leave him out hanging like that uh, for 20 games? And that, that really stuck, stuck out to me is it seemed like this was already in the plans and it just seemed like he was. there was no point in having him be out there. Well, yeah, I, I think, look, first of all, you know, it's a bad organization. I mean, I, I don't – the numbers will support that. I mean, it's just a, an organization that hasn't had very much success. And Tom went in there and, you know, yeah, Tom's a hard-charging guy. He's working. He's trying to get you somewhere. He hasn't been in the playoffs since 2004. He gets in the playoffs in the West. You know, 47 wins. I mean, tremendous. You would think everybody would would fall in love with him, but then it became, you know, he's grumpy and he's this and that. And, you know, and then with Fred Hoiberg, it's that he's not tough enough. And, you know, it, it's amazing all of the things that people want. And, and look, what everybody wants is the Golden State Warriors. Okay, but that's just not possible in every situation. I I mean, all I know is, or or at least what we think is going to go on in this business is it's going to be results oriented. I mean, I got fired in Detroit because we didn't win enough games. My owner didn't think we had won enough games. And, And so that's fine. And I got treated well there while I was there. And on the way out the door, there was no BS about me put out in the media by anybody there. There was none of this you know, analyzing, well, he didn't do this and he didn't do this. 
Everybody knew I was just gone because we didn't win enough. But some of these guys, you know, they create a narrative. And this narrative about Tom and the negativity about type of person he is and everything else, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, it, it just doesn't. I mean, the guy is a hardworking coach. Anybody who's been around him basically likes him. I, mean, I was with Paul Pierce last night. Guys love the guy. I mean, he's a good guy. Is he jovial in the middle of a game? <laughs> you know, he's trying to get Who something is, done. And that Who? was a hard job, a hard job in Minnesota. And he was getting it done. And, and that that's the other thing I feel for him, that, you know, being so unappreciated in, a, in such a tough job is, is, is really hard to deal with. And I feel for coaches who get treated like that. I mean, we, we all accept that it's going to be about results, but then it's not always. So you improve a franchise and you're still out the door. I mean, it, it's just, I don't know. It, 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 at times, it, it really bothers me some of these firings. Fred Hoiberg's one bothered me. Tom's really bothered me. Ty Lue's bothered me, except that I'm not so sure that Ty didn't want out. So yeah, um, yeah, that that was a that was know, a difficult spot. Yeah, yeah, that was a little bit of a different situation. You know, everything had changed. But yeah, it, it, it's difficult. I, and again, I'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for us, but that doesn't change the fact that it's difficult. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, taking the time to discuss the human side of coaching and the human side of this profession and this league. And I don't think people get to, and it's not on Tibbs or Tom to, to open up his life and show that there is a, there is a human being under there. That's not his job, but I think little pieces like this humanize the experience so that next time you see a headline like X coaches on the hot seat, it adds a little bit of like, ah, I don't know if this is, this is healthy. To be thinking about this this uh, rumor mill as not affecting human beings, and again, your assistants or your trainers or your your scouts, the people that are under you that aren't public facing, uh, their real lives being affected here. So, um, before you go, you did a great job as being an NFL analyst the other day on Levitard. <laughs> so, if the basketball so... thing doesn't work out, Stan, you can be an no, NFL I think, analyst. I actually thought Adam Schefter was better on the NBA. Than I was on the uh, well, I was on the NFL, but we both just went to like, you know, the generalities and the cliches. Like, <laughs> if you don't know anything else, you know, just go to they got to take it one day at a time, and you know, the one you can. Some guys are one year away. Guys. Some guys are one year yeah. away. Some guys are two years away, and some guys are just away. That was such a well, money right. line. That was well, such you know a money what? Line. I actually I stole that. I mean, my very first year in coaching, that's where that line came from. I was an assistant coach at the University of Vermont, and we had this freshman in our program, and our coach had said something like, he may be a year away from, you know, a major conference, but he's not a year away from us. And then he didn't have much of a year. And this one booster we had, who was a really good guy, gave me that line late in the year. He said, he's not one year away. He's not two years away. He's just away. Amazing. And I've hung on to that line forever. Look, I'm going to steal from everybody. That's, that's basically how I'm uh, getting through my life as a coach and now as a broadcaster. We're all steal, just burglars. Steal, steal. That's all. We're there all looters. Go. We're all looters. Absolutely. So, Stan, thanks so much. You can find Stan on the airwaves with Dan. That's not work with Levitard, right? Like, you laugh more during that hour or three hours than you do anywhere, right? Like, that's fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. I just laugh. Yeah, I laugh. <laughs> Those guys are great. I enjoy their show, when, even when I'm not on it. I think the one thing Dan Lebetard has maybe understood better than anyone in the business in any job is that at the end of the day, this is all entertainment. You know, Pat Riley used to say all the time, we're in the toy department of human affairs. And I don't think that anybody has acted on that more than Dan Levitard. Like, yeah, he'll talk to sports and everything else, but he's just not going to, it's always going to be in fun. He's not going to get too serious because at the end of the day, it's entertainment. And, and so going on with them is fun. And it's mainly because of Dan's perspective on what this is all about. Like nobody goes from like clown to 60 minutes hardcore journalism like Dan Levitard. Like he can throw the fastest fastball when it comes to writing and journalism and writing a profile on someone and just really cut to the heart of, of humanity, right? And then he can just be like, hey, what's the, uh, what does Stan Van Gundy look like? Like what, what, what he look like? And just completely turn into a clown. But he's, he's great. And Boog Shambi, I've been talking to him this week. He was supposed to deliver a little anecdote or a funny story story about you but he didn't this morning but you did a college basketball broadcast recently with him yeah he actually so when I did this ESPN deal having so many days you know he does college basketball that he sort of pushed them to to give me some games which was great because I wanted to do some and so I think because of him I got three games with him in the big 12 and I the first one we did was uh Texas at Oklahoma State and um I mean, it's fun to work with Boog. He's a good friend. It's fun to spend the time with him. And then it's really, it's enjoyable to be back, you know, around college basketball and that atmosphere and, and talking to those coaches and the whole thing, because I don't get many opportunities to do that. Well, whatever you do at your next chapter, Stan, I hope you feel that pull, that tug to do that very thing um, and you're passionate about it and your wife doesn't hate you for whatever job it is. So (laughs) best of luck to that. Thank you so much for your time and uh, I'll catch you around. Thanks, Tom. Man, I want to thank Stan Van Gundy for coming on to the podcast. Really enjoyed that one. Hope you did too. Even if you didn't enjoy it, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. That would be a huge help, and I think it'll be a positive in the plus-minus column in your life. It's a good thing. Thanks so much for staying around and listening. We'll have another one soon. Until then, thanks for listening, and tell your friends. Go tweet about it. Go post about it. Really appreciate it. Until next time. 